Welcome to Abiding in Avalon. I am your friendly neighborhood Judas Pagan Rich and your host, Rebecca Thistle, podcasting to you live-ish from my doodly hermitage, because I am, in fact, a Judas hermit. Uh, you know, I, I, before I get into what I actually want to talk about, I was, I was speculating the other day um, about how how I've been in hermit mode for so long and, and you know, and, and sort of learning about medieval hermitness uh, really, like, brought me a lot of joy. It's brought me so much joy and so much um, peace, right? Whoa, that was a real pop there. <laughs> anyway, did you have a pop screen? Yeah, well, yeah, but it, it's weird. Um, anyways, uh, one day I will I will have like a proper studio and this might actually be a professional sounding podcast. But for now, we work with what we have. Mm. Anyways, so um, but I, w- I was speculating on this that um, this this hermit idea, and I and I got to thinking about uh, something that I read in uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Mayhill, um, where. Uh, People in Ireland who converted to Christianity after St. Patrick did his thing. Um, Because paganism and Christianity sort of like lived in relative harmony for a couple of centuries as far as as far as we can tell. Uh, After uh, St. Patrick uh, made it out there. It's a a whole thing. But anyways. And um, and so you would have these. Uh, people who converted to to Christianity, uh, who would decide, you know, like like they get ordained as priests, they get you know taught to read the Bible and all this fun stuff, right? And they decide they want to live a hermit life, so they'd you know go off into the wilderness and you know and they'd find a nice little place and little cave and you know near a water source and and they just sit and in survival mode and, you know, trust in the powers that be, well, God, to, uh, to enlighten them and, and so on and so forth. And then eventually word would get around that, oh yeah, you remember that guy? Like he, cor- he, he converted to Christianity and then he disappeared. Well, why would Christianity make him do that? And so then they'd go investigate Christianity and they go, oh, this is really cool. Let me go find that guy and see what he had to say. And they go find that guy living his little hermit life. And then they'd be like, hey, can I be a hermit with you? <laughs> Which seems, you know, contradictory. And anyway, eventually that hermit would be the head of like a, a monastery or, or an abbey or, you know, something like that. Because, you know, he and sometimes she would have found um, some level of, of inner peace that just... Uh, magnetized other people seeking peace to them and so then you know so it's like all right we're gonna have like our little christian commune monastic life sort of thing anyway so i don't know maybe one day i will transition from being a dudist hermit to a dudist monk (laughs) i guess uh but uh you know it'll be fun but anyways uh, enough about that uh, right, so <laughs> let's talk about the historicity of King Arthur because, of fucking course, I want to talk about the historicity of King Arthur. So, first of all, there is no definitive proof of the historicity 
of King Arthur. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence out there to suggest that there was an Arthur-like figure. And, you know, and even if his name actually was Arthur, he probably didn't fancy himself a king. Maybe a warlord, you know, chieftain type person. Because here's the thing about when Arthur might have existence, right? So uh, the Romans invaded Britain uh, around about 55 BCE, give or take a couple of years, right? After after Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, he's like, <laughs> you know, because because that was how you got power, right? In uh, in Rome, or how you got respect was you went and you conquered new lands and you know and and annexed them to the Roman Empire. And so after Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, uh, then then it's like, hey, there's this there's this island over there, and um, let's let's go take stuff there. So anyway, so they conquer Britain starting around about 55 BCE. Uh, if you have heard of uh, Queen, again, she probably wouldn't have been called Queen, but if you've heard of Boudicca, um, then you know that, that the British, uh, the, the native Celtic Britons, didn't take too well to that, to be honest with you. Uh, but the Celtic style of fighting versus the Roman style of fighting, uh, very different. Celtics, uh, Celts were very good at like guerrilla warfare, you know, sneak attacks, surprise attacks. Like that was, that was their, that was their upper hand. It was, they were like, we're going to scare the shit out of you. And, um, you know, and that's how we're going to get that upper hand. Because if you're scared shitless, you're not going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to engage your lizard brain against your will. It was brutal, but everything was brutal back in the day because the past was the worst. Okay. <laughs> we like to think it was better. No, it wasn't. Anyways. Um, so then uh, you, but, but the Romans were really good at like planned strategic combat and unfortunately that was what won them you know like all right fine fuckers you know because you know this is just my speculation based on um you know a lot of different you know just observations of of what i know about the celtic peoples uh, the insular Celtic peoples, I should say, because Celts actually, you know, sort of spanned out all over um, Europe, and uh, there is speculation that they might have made it as far as Western China uh, with their culture. And they, they weren't really a unified empire; they were just sort of, you know, trading networks and different tribes that that shared a, a sort of culture, <laughs> much like the country of Macronesia. Which, by the way, go look that up. <laughs> I, I am a Macronesian citizen. I have dual citizenship. <laughs> I think it's amazing. Anyways, so, um, so yeah. So the Romans came in, like I said, and subjugated the Britons. And, you know, and, and they were there for a few centuries. So, of course, wherever Rome goes, you know, Rome, 
romanizes things. <laughs> it's just what you do. So, that, you know, so they create roads and they create aqueducts and they, you know, for want of a better word, civilize the Britons. And so you have many generations of, of people who have lived in this civilized Romano-Celtic society, right? And then starting, what was it, about 410? In the, in the early 5th century, early 400s CE, um, the Goths start sacking Rome, and Rome realizes, oh shit, we don't, we've, we've, we've got all our, our good generals and <laughs> soldiers and legions hither, hither and yon, we've got to call them back to deal with, with the, these Goths, right? And so, you know, the fallout is that, that Britain sort of gets left to their own devices. So meanwhile, you have um, pirates from Ireland uh, coming over, like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna take your shit. <laughs> it's a really it's a really weird like feeling that I have where I'm like, I like Ireland, <laughs> you know, where it's like, yes, fuck them over. But on the other end, it's like, but but those are also my people. <laughs> it's it's really interesting because um, this has nothing to do with King Arthur, um, and my my family background. Um, I've got, I've got English and Scottish and Irish. I'm pretty sure there, there must be some Welsh in there. I, I just have yet to find it. Uh, but I found someone on my family tree who was a noble person in, uh, Kent and Sutton, I believe. And, um, and that person was a descendant of Edward the Second, I believe, uh, who did a lot of fuckery with the the Scots. And so it's sort of like I I like to joke that I'm like on the on the one hand I've got that English heritage, but on the other hand I've got that Scottish heritage, and that's that you know no wonder I'm a mess, right? Anyways, <laughs> so so anyway so. Rome leaves Britain, like, hi, peace out. And, and by the way, this whole time, they have not taught the, the, the Romano-Celtic Britons how to maintain their roads or their aqueducts or, or, or defend themselves effectively. They haven't taught them how to do this. So they're like, no, 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 you're Roman. But we're not going to teach you how to be Roman, right? We're not going to teach you our ways because then if we teach you our ways, you might overthrow us. Because we know we're assholes. So, um, so the so the Irish pirates and 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 even the Picts start coming, you know, over Hadrian's Wall and start, you know, sort of raiding and looting and plundering. So uh, this guy Vortigern, uh, for want of a better word, King Vortigern, uh, he he calls in some mercenaries from uh, the continent, uh, from what the Romans called Germania, which is, uh, funnily enough, yes, it in- includes modern-day Germany, but it's also a lot of uh, countries surrounding Germany. So Vortigern calls in some mercenaries from Germania. Uh, Hengist and Horsha, I believe their names were. The, the guys that primarily led, primarily led it. And they're like, hey, help us, you know, get these, these invaders out. We, you know, we, we want our lands to be peaceful again. And these mercenaries are like, oh, all right. You know, and so they help them fight them back, right? 
get those picks back over Hadrian's Wall, you stay away, right? <laughs> you Irish pirates, fuck off, right? And then, and, and before anybody says anything, all of the two people that listen to this, no, Vikings weren't, weren't a threat at this time. Um, Vikings didn't really start invading, quote-unquote invading, um, setting up, you know, whatever, until the, the 8th or ninth century. So a few centuries away from this. We're still in the 5th century. Uh, so anyway, so they fight back, you know, these invaders, and then these Germanic mercenaries go back to the continent, and they're like, hey, so uh, this, this, this island, Britain, it's really nice, and they are idiots. They don't know how to defend themselves. They needed our help to get these other fuckers out. And so uh, so you have Anglos and Saxons that are like, all right, fuck it. And so they start invading. And um, and they start, they start invading, they start conquering, they start setting up camp and all that stuff. So somewhere, I'm going to pause here to take a sip. So somewhere in the middle of the 5th century, you have, um, you have something interesting happen. Because um, while a lot of, a lot of uh, especially like aristocratic and militaristic, you know, classed people, upper class people, uh, could speak and read and write in Latin, you know, because that's, of course, what you did, right? <clears throat> you also had, um, they, they weren't really doing anything. They weren't recording anything because the, um, the Celtic oral tradition was still, you know, the primary way people like to pass down their stories, right? Um, so, so this fifth-ish sixth is century is truly a dark age in British history. And if you, and if you talk to medieval scholars, they don't, you know, they don't like referring to, to the medieval period, the middle ages as the dark ages, because it really wasn't, it really well and truly wasn't. It was a different time. Yes. But there was a lot of innovation and enlightenment and there were a lot of horrible things happening, but there were a lot of awesome things happening. But of course, this is true of any point in history. But if there ever was a dark age in, in anywhere in Europe, it would have been Britain in the in the fifth, fifth, sixth century. So the Celts were passing down their tradition orally still, and despite being Romanized for many for a few centuries. Um and even though the Anglo-Saxons had their, you know, runic alphabet, they weren't using it to record stories. It was mostly just like contracts and like land grants and stuff like that. It was, you know, for legal purposes. But there was no like recording history the way that the Romans did. And the Romans were, they were awful about recording. Like they were great about recording history, but they were awful about it. Because it was, for instance, the story of Boudicca, you know, call back to that. It gets recorded, that story gets recorded, written down like a century after it happened or 50 years after it happened, something like that. Um, by, you know, I think it was Seneca. Don't, don't hold me to that. But by people who weren't fucking there. 
and the and and the sexism oh my gosh because you know the romans are very patriarchal civilization um so a lot of why Boudica went through what she went through uh, was because the Romans were like, a woman in charge? What is this witchcraft, right? So so that gets reflected in Seneca's account of it. So while, you know, yes, we can't appreciate that the Romans, you know, wrote down their shit, they, they were fuckers, you know, as, as, you know, history gets written by the victors, and the victors are always assholes. Sorry, truth hurts. Um, so, <laughs> and, you know, and then there, there's a, there is a lot in there that, 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 that makes me mad in that statement. History gets written by the victors and the victors are always assholes. Well, okay. Maybe not always. There's nuance, right? <laughs> there's, there's nuance. There's, there's assholery that, that you have to engage with in order to uh, be victorious. So back to the fifth century. <laughs> so the anglos and the saxons are invading and nobody's writing any fucking thing down uh nobody is is recording this uh, however if you look at the archaeological evidence there is there is evidence that shows you know this invasion of the anglos and the saxons from the east to the west and then somewhere right around almost directly in the middle of britain there you could almost draw a line um you know and also you have to keep in mind that this is south of hadrian's wall because the anglos and the saxons just like the romans did not want to fuck with the picts which is not probably not what they called themselves but you know the people of scotland and that again brings up some celtic pride <laughs> like <laughs> you know there you go anyways so um but, but there's archaeological evidence to show that there was not only a, a period of time where, they, where the, the Angles and the Saxons um, were stymied, stagnated, stopped, if you will, in the middle of the island, but there's some archaeological evidence to suggest that they actually got pushed back a little bit for a couple of generations. And so that would suggest that someone rallied the native, you know, Romano British Celts to fight back against these invaders. And so there's that. <laughs> there is there is fucking that. But again, circumstantial evidence. There there's nothing to definitively suggest who that leader was, what his name was. Nothing. However, you have some some writings from Gildas and then there was a poem that references Arthur that was written probably a couple of decades after after Arthur and it and it and it's just it's it's so anticlimactic when you hear it but at the same time it's like but what does that mean <laughs> right so um so the poem is is talking about you know this this mighty warrior right and, and I, I don't I don't have the poem in front of me and even if I did it, it really wouldn't make a difference because it's not like I can see it so I don't have it memorized 
but it's listing off all this this guy's great qualities he could do this and he could do that and he would do this and he would do that and he was so mighty and he was so brave and he was so noble and he was so generous and then it ends with but he was no arthur i know <laughs> it's it's like a little blip but at the same time you're like what does that mean what does that mean? It means that there was an Arthur. Now, there is some speculation that Arthur could have been someone from the um, uh, militaristic class that, you know, that, that, that would have been one of the, the few Romano Brits who was uh, taught combat and so on. But, you know, again, I'm, I don't think they taught him everything that the Romans knew not the point. Um, and, and so there is some, s- s- um, a speculation. There we go. There's that word. There is some speculation that Arthur could have been this guy, Ambrosius Aurelius, but again, it's speculation. It's, it's circumstantial. It's like, you know, it's not, a, it's not a lot, you know, Ambrosius Aurelius, you wouldn't know how to do this, right? Um, and he might have had the charisma to unite these these sort of fractured Celtic peoples, you know, lower class Celtic peoples, into you know rallying together to to fight back against this this invading enemy. Um, but of course, you know the the uh, the Anglo whoever this leader was, the, you know, died, and there was no one who could you know compare to his. Uh, charisma and and or militaristic prowess military prowess there we go um so the anglos and the saxons did eventually you know take over england and actually anglo anglo land is where we where where we get the word england so um and so they they invade and they they push the the celtic people you know uh, who refused to to bend the knee? They push him to the north and to the to the west, to modern day Scotland and um, what most people call Wales. Uh, I, I I don't know if I mentioned this <laughs> in last week's episode or the episode before that. I don't, I don't like calling it Wales. Uh, they prefer to call it the 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 people in that country prefer to call it Cymru. Um, which means countrymen, because the 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 term Wales comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Wales, which means uh, foreigner or stranger or even slave. And uh, well, <laughs> it, it like it it just I'm sitting here like y'all came here, y'all came to that land. Y'all are the invaders. Y'all are the strangers. And now you want to call us here, us, the you know, the, the Celts. You want to call us fucking strangers, fucking foreigners? Fuck you. So, <laughs> that's, again, it gets my Celt up. <laughs> you know, and, it, and it's a similar feeling that I, that I, that I feel looking at um, Native American indigenous history uh, in North America. Um, because it's, it's like, y'all came here and killed us and then called us savages. The fuck? You know? 
the the oppressed become the oppressors. And, and that doesn't make you better. Uh, anyways, I have oh, I have many many feelings. So, was there an Arthur? Possibly. Like I said, there there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. Now, let's fast forward several centuries, right? <laughs> like yada 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 through you know Viking raids and and the Norman invasion in 1066, and we get to 12th century Britain and uh, the monks at Glastonbury are doing an excavation, uh, apparently on the orders of Henry II. Now, I have my theories about Henry's motivations for this, but apparently he'd been tipped off by like a, you know, monk from, from Cymru or something, um, who, you know, said, oh, you know, the bardic tradition knows where, where Arthur is buried. Um, and so, you know, Glastonbury, they did an excavation, uh, they found the remains of someone. A couple of someones, actually. And uh, with those remains, they found a lead cross with an inscription that says, um, here lies Arthur. This is, by the way, this is in um, Latin. I can't remember like the actual Latin, so forgive me. Anyways, it says, here lies Arthur in the Isle of Avalon. Very, very, you know, and, and then apparently like on the on the back of the, the crosses is, and his second wife, Guinevere. Now, um, there are scholars who speculate that this was a hoax because we don't have those remains anymore. Now, you have to keep in mind that before, before a, around the enlightenment well probably more close to like the the renaissance before that time archaeology wasn't really a thing and honestly archaeology wasn't a thing until the enlightenment um you really start to see people getting like excited about that around about the 18th century so You know, and, and, and if you still got these, like, Celtic ideas about, like, the body isn't as important as the soul. So um, reincarnation was actually a very popular belief amongst many people around the world, including the Celts, including the insular Celts, where it's just like, you know, you're in this body, but then, you know, you come back. You come back once that body's, you know, done doing its thing. Or, you know, you, you go off into the other world and you hang out for a while. And then you come back if you want to. Uh, death is not a permanent thing for them. So, you know, so remains of uh, great leaders, especially, were generally generally not preserved um, as, as, as thoroughly as, 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 like, say, in Egypt or whatever, right? So, um, so yeah, so the, the monks in Glastonbury, I think this was in 1191, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they, they do this excavation, they find these bodies, they find this cross, they put it on display. And a lot of scholars are very skeptical of this because A, we don't have those remains because again, archaeology wasn't a thing, wasn't that big of a thing, I should say. Um, and B, we don't have that cross 
We don't, we don't have this legend cross. It's, it's been lost since time out of memory. Um, the most we have is some his historian, his derogator person, uh, during the reign of, uh, Henry the sixth, Henry Tudor, um, went and found it because, you know, Henry was really trying to drive home that like Arthurian connection because his, his claim to the throne of England was very tentative. If you know your English history, you know what I mean? But his, his throne, he was, he was, um, Welsh, Cymraeg. He was, he was from Cymru. And, uh, so his, his, uh, his claim to the throne was very, mm, right. And Henry the seventh, um, really internalized that. So between Henry the sixth and Henry the seventh, you had a lot of like, let me lean into this like Arthurian thing. Right. So, yeah, so it sent somebody to go, you know, sketch this this uh, this cross, uh, and then somewhere in between when that cross was sketched and essentially now we don't know what happened on the cross. However, the inscription, you know, the authenticity first of all of of that of that drawing's pretty well known, I think, uh, but the inscription on it. Yes, it says in Latin all all that's right, but the 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 Latin if if this was going to be a hoax, you would have thought that these monks who who are uh, learned in in a Latin that has evolved since the fifth century because language does that even dead languages uh, do that, but. It, you would think that the name Arthur on that on that cross would be something like Arturus, but the inscription says Arturius, Arturius, something like that. It is a different, like obviously still an an Arthur-like name, but it is not the Arthur-like name that you would expect twelfth-century monks to use in a clever forgery um so that that sort of thing so but these scholars really you know question ugh, i i i go all, all over the place okay so these scholars really question the authenticity of this quote-unquote discovery right because first of all glass uh damn it did, did i mention this part <laughs> I don't know. So on this cross, on this cross is this inscription that says, uh, here lies King Arthur in the Isle of Avalon, right, in in, in um, Latin. And so uh, Arthur, you would think if it was if, if it was a, a forgery, it would say Arturus, which, which is the Latin version of Arthur that would have been in use in the 12th century, but it's Arturius or Arturius. It's a very different one that, probably was in use in the 5th century. But these 12th century monks wouldn't have known that because they're 700 years removed from it, right? Um, but then also the, the Isle of Avalon thing. Glastonbury's not a fucking island. Um, however, during the 5th century, 
the hill upon which Glastonbury Abbey is uh, built would have been surrounded by like marshlands. So to get to the abbey, it would have been easier to go by boat than to go by foot. So you could see how these medieval people, these Romano-Celtic Britons, in their minds would have been like, that's an island. On an island, right? So there's that. Uh, but the scholars that, that doubt the authenticity of this find, the other reason that they, that they doubt that authenticity is because the monks at Glastonbury were had they just had a fire and so they were trying to rebuild and so you know what better way to you know encourage donations by saying hey we found king arthur and uh you know and get people to be like hey so let's go let's go on pilgrimage and and check out king arthur and uh the and you know and and check this all out um and then uh and then we'll uh um Losing my train of thought. I'm sorry, <laughs> and then we'll donate to the to the abbey to you know keep it you know alive and well, so that more people can come pay homage to Arthur. Um, except they didn't really get a lot of money. They didn't really get a lot of money. Now, here's the thing: is 20th century archaeology has shown that there was an excavation done in the 12th century, round about the 12th century, round about the time that the monks would have said that they found it. Now, this is just my speculation. This is my biased, angry self. So take this part with a grain of salt. I personally think that, that all this is true. And that all this is true. I'm not a scholar. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm just, I'm a Celtophile. <laughs> Obsessed with Ars Thuriana right now. This is my hyperfixation right now. Has been for a little over a year. Um, but I, there's, there's evidence that they, that they did a dig. I believe that somebody tipped off Henry II. Now, Henry II considered himself more French than English, but he, he wanted to keep his claim to the throne. He wanted to keep his claim to the throne. And so when he got this tip off from this, this, uh, you know, bard from Cymru, um, saying, Hey, we, we all know where, where Arthur is, you know, yada, yada. He ordered this excavation at Glastonbury and, um, and I think it was less because of the Abbey itself and more as a way you know, because all the because all the legends of Arthur, with very few exceptions, uh, you know, always talk about you know the once and future king, right? That that Arthur uh, went to Avalon and he will come back to unite Britain again and fight back an invader, right? And so I think that Henry wanted to find those remains. And wanted those monks to be successful so that he could say, there is Arthur. He's not coming back. He's dead. So, um, 
<laughs> that's 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 just my thing. I, I I really well and truly believe that it was um, that it was um, less about finding a piece of of British history and more about um, further subjugating uh, what vestiges of of Celtic Britain still held out hope that 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 they would no longer be oppressed. And so that's that's just my thing. But um, you know, and, and see if if the excavation had been unsuccessful, we never would have heard about it. We never would have heard about it. And and you know, and Henry definitely wouldn't have, you know, been involved, right? And don't don't put my name on it. But because it was successful, you know, Henry the Second was yeah, no, I told them to dig there. I heard about it. I wanted to, I, I wanted, you know, and it was less about like, hey, look, here's this great king of England and more of like, hey, look, your hero ain't coming back, motherfuckers. That's how I feel. And I ha- I have hope that that lead cross will, will show up one day and we'll be like, oh, you know, <laughs> somebody, some like, you know, really rich asshole, you know, one of his kids not knowing the import of, of what's there. Why am I assuming it's a him? Because of course I am, you know, one of his kids will, you know, not knowing the import of, you know, what's been hiding in his attic or in his, you know, safety deposit box or whatever, will donate everything to like Oxford or, you know, Bangor University, preferably, you know, something like that. And, uh, and they'll be like, yeah, so, uh, here we go. Here we fucking go. You know, and then we'll find that lead crossing him. I have hope. <laughs> it's a gift and a curse, really. Um, so, was there an Arthur? Maybe. Maybe. And was he, did he do all the all the things? No, the fuck he didn't. Because here's the thing is, you know, the seed that started to sprout the Arthurian story in, in the uh, European imagination. Um, that seed was planted by Geoffrey Monmouth. And so here's, here's the thing. Geoffrey Monmouth came from Cymru. <coughs> and, and, and yes, he wanted to, you know, write this, you know, big epic thing about the history of the kings of Britain. And it's and notable here is that, that the bulk of, of that is, um, dedicated to Arthur, Historia Regum Britannia, HRB. Um, the bulk of that is a huge portion of that, I should say, is dedicated to Arthur. And then after Arthur, you have just like a couple of kings, because he's he's not gonna he's not gonna waste a whole lot of time talking about the Anglo-Saxons, right? Because you know he's coming right. Um. So uh, you know, but the but the thing about um, you know, and I'm I'm reading the Mabinogion right now. I just I got I just got through the the. Uh, four branches of the Mabinogi, and now I'm going through some of the other stories, uh, some of which are actually Arthurian in nature. But even in in the branches of the Mabinogi, um, the way they, you know, I mean, they don't go into like huge details about you know like how things are set up and, and all that. But the way the stories play out, you'd almost think that you know these these you know 
people are living in like castles, you know, and, 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 and stone castles and all that. And that's because the people who um, started writing it down would have been living in the Middle Ages. And eventually that, that gets translated by Charlotte Guest in the uh, 19th century. And, um, you know, and from there, and it's, a, it's a whole mess. I don't want to get too much into it. But um, anyway, so these stories, it's, it's funny how we tell these stories um, to suit an audience. And, like, when you read the Mabinel Giam, um, you can, and for me, I'm listening to it on audio, obviously. But, you know, I can, I can hear, even though, like, the language feels sort of strange, you know, and not least because it is a, a translation from Welsh and it, and it is uh, Welsh from from medieval times that that's being translated. But you can you can hear how this was a story that was meant to be told in person by a bard acting some shit out because it is so interesting to me, like all these action sequences are are told in first person like it shifts into that that first person verb tense and then and then um and then and then when you know you're sort of moving the story along um it, it goes into past tense um like i just finished the story of peridir <laughs> i think i mentioned it a couple of weeks ago <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, and I couldn't remember the name. It's Peridir, but it sounds like Bedivere to me in my head, but it's Peridir, Um, and so, and, and, and so in this, in this story, like, it's really interesting because it's like, and then Peridir went to the court at Camelot and, and he said this to this person and he did that to this person and this happened and that happened. And then he went out into this meadow and he fought this knight and the knight said, yada, 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 and, you know, and all this. And then he throws this dart. And, oh my gosh, it's so graphic. He throws this dart through this, this knight's eye and it comes all the way out i know that the point the point that i'm trying to make is that when you tell these stories um you are you are trying to connect with the audience like like that is how the oral tradition works and so jeffrey of monmouth coming from that that oral tradition coming from Cymru, would have would have been telling these stories, you know, yes, writing them down in Latin, but essentially telling these stories, meaning to fit the audience of the time period in which he's writing. So in that time period, yes, you're having stone castles, you're having iron, you know, knight, not so much knights in shining armor, but you're going to have more like metal armor and stuff like that. And so you're going to get this, this sort of image in your head of knights in shining armor, right? However, in the 5th century, you wouldn't have been living in stone castles. They weren't building from stone. They were, you know, building from wood and, and mud and stuff. You know, that's what we had. Um, you know, stones were generally going to be used for, like, uh, veneration. You know, think like Stonehenge. Um, 
uh, my favorite Stonehenge archaeologist. Nothing to do with Arthur, by the way. <laughs> Let's just step over here and talk about Stonehenge, another one of my hyperfixations. Um, my favorite Stonehenge archaeologist, uh, Mike Parker Pierce, he uh, he speculated. There's there's a documentary. Of, I I want to say it's called Stonehenge Decoded or something, but he speculated that um, the Stonehenge was built as a monument to the people who had come before. And um, my daughter's waking up, which is not great. Uh, <laughs> hang on. Okay, I'm back. Sorry. <laughs> I know that was like nothing for you. Um, I just got my daughter set up with, with some stuff. And, and, and then um, I want to finish this because I'm on a roll. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so, yeah. So, so Mike Parker Pierce uh, has speculated that um, Stonehenge was, was built, amongst other things, as a place to venerate the people who had come before, you know, because death is permanent. And then he excavated a site about a mile away, give or take, mile, two miles, something like that. You know, something that would have uh, would have been something of a, a hike, you know, but it would have been reasonable. And, and there is evidence to, to suggest that... Um, that they would build, they had built, I should say, a monument out of wood um, to celebrate the impermanence of life. Because, you know, wood, uh, stone lasts forever, wood, you know, has has a sell-by date, if you will. So, uh, so yes. So, in the, in the 5th century, they wouldn't have been building in stone. Uh Armor probably would have been made of boiled leather at that time. Because even though the Celts were really, really good at, like, um, metalworking, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of the things that makes them fucking awesome, they generally fought in the nude. And even though the Romans had been inhabiting there for a while, I mean, they might have had, like, chain mail. But for the most part, boiled leather. Because you work with what you have. So when Geoffrey of Monmouth is, you know, is sort of describing uh, the days of Arthur in excruciating detail in uh, Historia Regum Britanniae, HRB, um, he's, again, he's doing this sort of camraig um, oral tradition thing where it's like I'm going to put this story in a, in a time and a place that you can understand. He's writing for 11th century people. Um, I want to say that he he uh, published this as best you can say before the printing press. Um, he, he published this, I want to say it was 1061. So, so it's really interesting because he's, he's writing this precariously <laughs> right around the Norman invasion, because even though the norm, the Normans hadn't actually like fully invaded, you know, done their conquest, there were rumblings, you know, there's, there's, there's always sort of, there's the clouds on the horizon, right? Before a storm rolls in, it feels weird to say this because as I'm, 
as I'm recording this, uh, there's a hurricane about to hit Florida. Or actually, it's probably hitting Florida right now. Uh, but, you know, but, th- but there's always indications, you know, I, I often, I often sit and I wonder about like, you know, how could, you know, how, how could people predict weather patterns? You know, we, we think of like the, the farmer's almanac, which I mean, wasn't a medieval thing, obviously this is, I'm thinking about like in the, in the 19th century, you know, we had things like the farmer's almanac, but you, you know, how could you predict when you were going to get rain and when you weren't? And, you know, and yes, you have sort of like these divination type things, right? But, um, I sort of, I sort of wonder, you know, how, how, how they did that. Um, but I I think a lot of it is just, you know, noticing subtle changes in in the wind in 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 the smell of the air <laughs> it's really funny um again this has nothing to do with arthur we're off on a lot of tangents because that's what that's what i do when i get excited <laughs> i love talking about arthur and so now i'm going to talk about weather and uh you know stonehenge and stuff so anyways um there's this uh creator that i follow um who also lives in colorado in the denver area and, uh, I think he does. I think it's in, the, I, I don't know. I'm like, I've never asked him like, Hey, exactly. Where are you? Cause that's just kind of creepy. Right. Anyway. So he, he posted a video, I think it was about a year ago where he said, if it's about to rain, it's going to smell like commerce city. I think it was. And if it's going to snow, it's going, you're going to start smelling greely. <laughs> <laughs> and but uh, you know but the point that I'm trying to make is is I'm pretty sure that 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 um that you know those little subtle changes you know where you can smell it in the air or where you can you know sort of sense it in your bones or you know not just seeing clouds on the horizon sort of thing um what was the point of that oh yes so uh <laughs> back to the norman invasion right so when jeffrey monmouth is writing historia regum Britanniae, um he is um he is seeing those clouds on the horizon of that norman invasion and so he's he's sort of hedging his bets you know and you mostly see that in like his he's got two dedications right it's it's a really um that's a really interesting thing. So to sum this all up, since I've gone on so many tangents and, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's a mess. Um, to sum this all up, was Arthur real? Mm, probably. I, I personally think that he was, but I don't think he went by the title of king. Um, or maybe he did. I don't know. But I honestly, I don't think, I don't think he would have, at least initially, you know, he was probably a warlord or a chieftain, maybe a higher up, like military type person. There's, there's the possibility that he, that he was Roman trained, you know, general or something that had enough charisma to go like, Hey, Hey, my countrymen, (laughs) let's, uh, let's, let's, let's go come right let's go we're gonna you know these suckers they don't get to come in here and call us foreigners Mm. so i do i do think there was an arthur um was he called arthur maybe maybe not like i said ambrosius aurelius seems to be a a popular um 
a popular uh, theory about who could have been the basis for the Arthur-like figure. <clears throat> I think I think I've even heard like some scholars speculate that Arthur was was less an actual name and more of an um, like title. <laughs> yeah, something like that, you know, you know, sort of like general as opposed to, you know, like the Arthur Ambrosius Aurelius, you know, as opposed to like general, Art, you know, Ambrosius Aurelius or whatever. Aurelianus, I think is actually how that's supposed to go. I'm thinking Marcus Aurelius, but I think it's Aurelianus. And I've been saying it wrong this whole time, but I, I think there was an Arthur. Or an Arthur-like figure, um, whether he went by Arturius or Arturus or Arthur or whatever. Um, the other interesting thing to note here is that, as far as we can tell from what few you know written records, the Anglo-Saxons uh, left between their invasion and uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth his record is they they all had you had all these rulers that they would name their sons Arthur and you see this actually echo with Henry the 7th um where uh his first son was actually named Arthur cuz Henry the 8th he wasn't supposed to be king he was he he was the spare he wasn't the heir he was the spare and his his brother was Arthur. Unfortunately, Arthur got sick shortly after he married Catherine of Aragon, um, and he died. And the, that's that's a whole that's a whole other can of worms. And I'm trying to wrap this up, but you see these people, uh, these these leaders naming their sons and their heirs Arthur repeatedly possibly as a way to try and garner favor with the people over whom they were ruling to be like, no, 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 no. Arthur's coming again. He's my son. He's my son. See, 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 bend the knee. So, uh, but the story of Arthur, you know, gets, gets sort of molded and, and shaped based on, based on history. And I, I don't know, if I, again, I'm sort of going with what I'm, what I'm feeling in my gut these days. Uh, with regards to this, uh, we may go back to you are about us. I say we as though it's more than just me doing this, but um, we may go back to you are about us. We may keep talking about Arthur. We may, I, I don't know, I'm starting to really enjoy the Mabinogion. Um, and I have some thoughts about that that I may want to share out here because talking about it helps me sort of process it. Anyways, so I don't know what's next week's episode's going to be, but I um there there you go. There probably was an Arthur, but there might not have been. And we, you know and 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 I think that's that's the trick. You know, I think I think that's the trick when it comes to to scholarship is you have to you have to find the evidence to support your argument but also acknowledge that you could be wrong or that more evidence could come out to um disprove your theory and this is actually probably where i'm where i might be getting into you know the mabinogion because i have some more thoughts about this anyways but I'm done with this. I'm done with this. I'm done with this episode. It's it's already been enough. And and uh, Kaylee is is uh, 
the, the, I have I have this fire tablet that I I have been struggling to get that stupid thing to charge regularly and it's only got 21% so <laughs> it's going to die pretty soon and so I'm I'm going to I'm going to be busy today let's just put it that way so anyways rebeccathistle.xyz check out my courses check out my coaching services my uh, card reading services um if you want to get my co- uh, my course on creating an ADHD friendly spiritual practice um you can go to rebeccathistle.xyz tap on courses uh tap on the only course that's there right now <laughs> as of this recording um and uh and if you use the coupon code avalon77 you can get 77 percent off of the asking price of 77 dollars <laughs> because numbers <laughs> Anyways, um, that's really honestly it. So go check that out. And until next time, remember to stay doodly and abide.